turn with me to Luke chapter 23, Luke chapter 23. I'm going to read a couple of verses, a few verses from Luke 23 and then a few from Luke 24. Starting, if you have your Bibles with you, and if you don't have a Bible, you can certainly uh, pull up Bible Gateway, an online Bible like that, and find this same passage. Just type it in, Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32. And remember last week we already left off with Jesus on the cross. Let's take a look here. Starting in verse 32, there were also two others, criminals, these two thieves, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, also called Golgotha, by the way, uh, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and one on the left hand. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen one of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Pick it up in chapter 24. This is after Jesus died, the first day of the week, the day that we are gathering right now, Sunday, first day of the week, Luke 24, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came, and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in, did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray again. Father, we ask your blessing, your anointing, your power, your presence on this time of Bible study and remembrance of what Jesus has done. Lord, remove me once again from the equation, as it were, that each person, myself included, would only hear from Jesus. For Lord, you are the only one that we want to hear from, not me or any other pastor, but to hear from you, the great shepherd. We pray you'd bless and open eyes and soften hearts and change lives this morning. In your name we ask it. Amen. In many cases, uh, perhaps most cases, the word empty has a negative connotation, a less than desirable situation, an empty gas tank, right? An empty wallet. Everybody loves an empty wallet. An empty checking account, which is worse than an empty wallet. Sometimes you're empty of strength or energy. An empty cereal box. When you were not expecting it to be empty, those of you that have kids, you know what I'm talking about. An empty jug of milk can be just as problematic. There's stuff in the cereal box. Lately, go to the grocery store and you see aisles of empty toilet paper, paper towels, and napkins. The value of paper products has soared lately. I buy stock in it. 
But an empty tomb is a totally different situation, a more important situation. In fact, if you bought a gravesite or a mausoleum, also called a vault, you're probably glad yours is still empty right now, right? You're glad your mausoleum's empty. But the tomb where Christ was laid was victoriously empty. Victoriously empty. It's a different kind of empty. It had previously been empty. No body had ever been laid there. It was newly hewn, given to him by Joseph of Arimathea. It had been occupied for three days, as we just read in the text. Three days it had been occupied, but then it had been vacated and great power and glory. This is a different kind of empty. The most glorious and victorious form of empty the world has ever seen or ever will see. This is an empty we want to see. An empty we desperately need to see. The salvation of our souls depended on the grave being empty and Jesus destroying the corruption of death. But before Jesus defeated death and dealt a death blow to death, he first had to deal with the issue of what? Sin. Sin had to be dealt with before death. There was an issue of our sin. And that was done those three days earlier at the cross of Calvary. And so I want to pick up where, where, where we left off last week in our walk through. We walked through Jerusalem, the Passover mission of Jesus. And by the way, this morning when I went outside early, heard the birds, I felt like I was back in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we were praying outside in our little courtyard here this morning. And the sun shined, and I felt like I was back. I did a teaching in the Garden of Gethsemane. It just took me straight back there. And right in that area, just north, of the, the, uh, just north of the Temple Mount, is the garden tomb there. But as we walked through the city last week, this Passover mission of Jesus, we're picking back up where we left off, the fact that the sin had to be dealt with. Jesus is on the cross. You cannot have the resurrection without the cross. You cannot have the cross without the resurrection. Salvation is incomplete without both cross and resurrection. They're two sides of the same coin. God's plan of redemption, our forgiveness, requires a sacrificial Passover lamb and his victory over death. Got to have the lamb, got to have the empty tomb. So let's go back to what I personally believe. I personally believe that Jesus went on the cross on Thursday and a lot of Bible scholars agree with me on that. You, we celebrate it traditionally as Good Friday, and I'm fine with that. I celebrated it Friday, but I personally believe it was Thursday. I'm not here to debate that, but when Jesus had been placed upon the cross, it was around 9 a.m. We know this from the Scriptures. In Jewish time, that was referred to as the third hour. 6 a.m. would be the first hour, 9 a.m. is the third hour. You have 12 hours from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So in the Jewish realm, it's the third hour. And what we're going to look at is three things here this morning. Now, the first I'll start with is what I'm calling six suffering hours. Six suffering hours. Then we'll look at three silent days 
and one stunning Sunday. Six suffering hours, three silent days, one stunning Sunday. It was from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., that's six hours, that Jesus would hang and suffer excruciating agony on the cross. Can you imagine being crucified? Mind you, he had already endured his back being shred by a Roman cat of nine tails. Many would have never made it past the pre-cross torture. I wouldn't have made it. Jesus was way stronger, had no sin. He endured. But around 9 a.m., Jesus is hoisted upon the cross, hung between two thieves. In Matthew chapter 27, verses 37 through 38, we see very similar to what we just read in Luke. But the thing is, it said, this is the king of the Jews inscripted above him in Greek and Latin and Hebrew. The inscription was meant to be an insult to the Jews. It was Pilate's way of kind of sticking it in their eye because he really didn't even want to crucify Jesus. It was meant to be an insult. This is your king. But in fact, it was eternally accurate. The insult was actually true. But as Jesus is now fastened to the cross, the sacrifice for sin has begun. Remember, it was the Passover. And the innocent blood of a Passover lamb shed and applied going back to the original shedding of blood there in Egypt to the doorpost. It was a reminder that God had passed over certain death and certain judgment. But understand, it wasn't just the evil and the sin of the Roman and Jewish leaders. They shouldn't have done that. That placed Jesus on the cross. No, my sins, your sins, we were just as guilty of crucifying Jesus, even though we weren't there. We were just as guilty. He hung there for all the sins of all of mankind and all of time. John Stott said this. He said, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. We were guilty. Indeed, our sins necessitated the suffering of the cross, but the cross was endured willingly by what? The infinite love of Jesus. He could have said one word. He could have said no words, and all of his executioners, all of his enemies would have fallen dead on the spot. But he went willingly, as Isaiah says, as a lamb to the slaughter. He went willingly. In John chapter 10, I love this passage, 17 18, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. You and I could never say a thing like that. This command I have received from my Father. Not only did it take great power for Jesus to walk out of the grave, it took great power to lay down his life, but he had the power to do both, and he did it willingly. Yes, they cried out, give us Barabbas. But Jesus was determined to complete the mission of redemption. Pilate, remember, he was willing to work with Jesus. 
But Jesus refused a way out because of his great love for your soul and my soul. He refused a way out even though Pilate was willing to make a deal. Philip Brooks said this. He said, love was compressed for all history in that lonely figure on the cross who said that he could call down angels, in fact, legions, at any moment on a rescue mission, but he chose not to because of us. At Calvary, God accepted his own unbreakable terms of justice. The holiness of God. Understand the holiness of God. God is holy. God is sinless. Because of the holiness of God, sin has to be paid for. Has to be covered. Somebody has to pay for sin. Either we pay or God provides a payment. But it has to be paid. God is sinless. God is holy. It had to be paid. So let's look at the payment that God offered in the form of his own son. Let's look at Jesus on the cross. I'm going to look briefly at the progression of the time of the cross. Maybe you're familiar with, oh, yeah, I know Jesus died, but, but what took place in those six hours? What were the defining moments of these six suffering hours? Well, we know in the first three from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m., Jesus is crucified. He's nailed to the cross. It's in the same time that he says the words that we just read, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Before God opens our eyes, we're very blind to our condition. We would do things we don't think we're capable of, including putting the very Son of God on the cross. Literally, they had no idea, in some sense, what they were doing. Even uh, Jonah, when he was sent to Nineveh, God said at the end, uh, should I not have compassion on people who don't know their right hand from their left hand? They would have said, we know our right hand from our left hand, but not in the spiritual realm. They were blind to their own sinful condition. The soldiers in this time, they cast lots for Jesus' garments. To them, Jesus was just another day at the office. No big deal. He was like anybody else. At first, that's what they thought. Jesus is mocked. He's taunted. He's insulted. It's vile, and there's no pity whatsoever that they have for Jesus. I can't imagine watching someone be crucified having no pity at all. But they didn't. It's incredible how cruel people can become when they're given over to all the evil capacity in our hearts. You read some of the news stories, you're like, how does someone get to this? They had no pity. They mocked, they insulted. It's also at this time that Jesus pardons one of the two thieves on the cross. This is the time period. He pardons one of the two, and he promises one of them, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Is that not some of those beautiful words you will ever read in all of Scripture? Jesus says to one person and one person only, today you'll be with me in paradise. The only time we ever see that in Scripture. Today you and me are going to be there together because that was the day Jesus died and that was the day he was going to die. And by the way, we know from that moment that is proof that our salvation is only by what? Grace. What did this man ever do to earn? He didn't do any works for God. He didn't win anyone to Christ. He didn't go to church. He didn't do anything. He called upon the name of the Lord in his dying hours, and Jesus said, today you'll be saved. 
Sadly, the other one did not do that. Instructions were given to Mary and to John. Even in great suffering, Jesus still has responsibility and just kind of attention to his relationships. Even while he's suffering, he's saying, Mary, John will take care of me. John would outlive all the other apostles, so it would make sense that he would assign John. Now, in the second three hours, from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., the sixth to the ninth hour, all of a sudden around midday, it becomes like midnight. Darkness covers the sky. This should have been a major sign to everybody, we've done something really wicked. Everyone should have known. The skies went dark. It was not a lunar eclipse because they don't last for three hours. It wasn't a solar eclipse. It wasn't anything. Those are much shorter. Three full hours of darkness. This was sent by God as a sign that the darkness of sin was on his son. The darkness and blackness of sin was laid upon his son. It's also when Jesus, remember he asked to forgive the people, but he also cries out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Over the years, I've heard pastors break this passage down. I will not. We have no clue what Jesus was feeling when he made that statement. It is so beyond our comprehension to even try and fathom exactly what he's saying. I'll wait till I get to heaven and ask him if he wants to even explain that to us. But he cries this out. It's, it's really mind-boggling to us exactly what he's saying to the Father at this moment. Jesus is thirsty at this point. No doubt he's not, he has been thirsty, but he expresses it in this time. Uh, his mouth would have been dry, his tongue clinging to the roof of his mouth. As he gets to the point of finally dying, he cries out these words, It is finished. The hard part was over. The suffering part was over. He had to complete the mission, but this was the hardest part of the mission, to actually complete the work on the cross. And then he says these words, into your hands, I commit my spirit, and he breathes his last. I was driving home last night, sun was setting, and it just came to my mind. I was, I was just thinking about it. Later I was, that night, I was talking to another pastor. We prayed together over our services. and It's unbelievable that Jesus is six hours on the cross and his shed blood, if he took all the shed blood of every sacrifice the world has ever seen, and if you did that from now till the, for the next 10 trillion years, it wouldn't pay for any sins at all. Jesus goes to the cross for six hours. We know that there's been, in the history of the world, at least 50 billion people have been born, probably more. His six hours on the cross, his shed blood, can pay for trillions of sins and billions of people, and God says that's how valuable. I'm not even sure why God chose six hours. Why wasn't it seven hours? Why wasn't it 12 hours? Why wasn't it three hours? God doesn't have to answer those questions. He simply says in his providence that these six hours will satisfy all sins if you're willing to receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers. Blows my mind that if we could have done everything else for billions and trillions of years and we couldn't pay for a single sin. Because why? We aren't sinless. It took a sinless sacrifice. 
Now, immediately after Jesus gives up his spirit, some amazing things take place. You've heard of, heard of them. I want you to see them in order. A powerful earthquake shakes the city of Jerusalem and Judea. This is another major sign if you were there. It's dark. Shouldn't be dark. Now the earth is quaking. That's odd. It started quaking as soon as he gave up his spirit. All of a sudden, the earth starts quaking. The veil of the temple, those that work in the temple say, uh, someone's going to have to get the high priest. Something weird just happened. Can anyone put a time? Well, as far as we know, remember that guy that calls up Jesus? He died, and as far as we know, the very second that happened, in the temple, the veil, which would have taken a massive team of oxen pulling him opposite direction, it just cut like a butter knife right down the center. Can someone tell the high priest he needs to come see this? He's got to take a look at this. What this ushered in is Jesus is now our high priest and our sacrifice. He's our sacrifice and he's our high priest. Now, some people did notice earthquake, dark skies, and they saw him pardon a man and say, today you'll be with me in paradise. And they saw the love in his eyes. They saw the power with which, with, with which he spoke. And a Roman centurion and other soldiers said, truly this was the Son of God. They realized Jesus was the Son of God in his suffering. Amazing. The legs of the thieves at the cross, they're broken. That caused them to slump down and not be able to catch their breath, and they die quicker because everyone had to be put in the grave before sundown because it was a Jewish feast time, and so nobody could, nobody could still be on a cross. So the thieves, they die as well, but none of Jesus' bones are broken. As the Scriptures prophesied, none of his bones would be broken. Jesus' side is then pierced by a sword, and water comes out. We're saved by the blood of Jesus, but we're then given the water, the living water of the Holy Spirit. We're saved by the blood, but we're given the living water that flows. Instead of out of us, it flows into us from Christ and then back out in our lives. And then lastly, Jesus is wrapped and laid in a garden tomb that's never been used. Now, he was born and wrapped in linen and laid in a manger, so he would eventually be wrapped in linen and laid in a tomb from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. He's come full circle here. So now Jesus is in the tomb. He's endured these six suffering hours, not to mention all the torture before it and the trial and the scourgings and all that, but six suffering hours specifically on the cross, which brings us to three silent days. Three silent days. The death of Christ... It leaves his followers breathless, speechless, and leaderless. Bewilderment would be an understatement. Yet some of the women, they stayed close to Christ and even watched him be put in the tomb and the stone rolled in front of the tomb. They, they watched from a distance, but they kept their eyes on him as, as long as they could until the tomb was finally sealed. They were that dedicated to him. Now, in chapter 23, we didn't read this verse, but I'll put it on the screen for you here. In chapter 23, 
verses 55 through 56. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after him, and they observed the tomb, how his body was laid. Then they returned, after they saw where Jesus laid, they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now Jesus had told his followers precisely how he would die. Did you know that? If you're watching online, did you know Jesus had told his followers on numerous occasions precisely how he would die? Precisely. And that he would rise in three days. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, this is just one example. There's others. He says these words, Behold, we, all of us, him and the disciples, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed, that would be Judas, to the chief priests and scribes, that would be Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, that would be Pilate and Herod, and scourge, that's the Roman whip that beat his back, and then and to crucify, and on the third day he would rise again. Could you get a more accurate description of what was going to take place than that? Every single thing is laid out. Now he, he does a mini, that's a mini outline of the whole, from the time he is betrayed in the garden till the time he rises on the first day of the week. That's the timeline right there. Jesus lays the whole thing out in detail, very detailed. In addition, to what he told them. I want you to make sure you understand this if you're listening online. In addition to that, on at least three occasions, the disciples saw him raise people from the dead. A young girl, a young man, and recently, most recently, to, in proximity to the time on the cross, Lazarus. So they could have encouraged one another, being the disciples and the women, they could have encouraged one another and said, okay, at least he's rising from the dead in three days. At least we know. Let's have a three-day prayer and praise service anticipating his resurrection. But that's not what happened, is it? That's not what happened. Oh, it, it encourages me. It shows how fragile our faith really is. Let me tell you something. Jesus said, to Peter, he said, I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. There's times where I don't have a lot of faith, but I still believe in Jesus. They didn't believe in, they didn't quite understand what he's saying. They didn't believe in the resurrection, but they still believed in him. See, their belief, their faith was different than Pilate's. Pilate believed, hey, you're a pretty good guy. They believed you really do have the words to eternal life, but they still were perplexed. They were bewildered, but why did you die? And leave us. Even though he had told them that that had somehow gone over their heads or that bit of faith had not yet been deeply implanted in their soul. But again, it tells us why Jesus said even a little mustard seed of faith can move a mountain. But during these in-between days, the minutes probably felt like hours. The minutes probably felt like hours. Agonizing Will we ever see him again? Why did we lose him? Instead of anticipating a reunion with Jesus, they were reeling. They were reeling. 
The cross itself was horrifying. I would have a hard time getting over just seeing the cross for days anyway. Even if I thought he was going to rise again, I could see that troubling us all for days. The consensus feelings felt throughout the disciples, both the men and the women, are understandable given our human frailty and their belief that Jesus was gone. How could they go on now without their master, their rabbi, their leader, their teacher? He said he was going to usher in the kingdom of God. He said he was going to save them, but he's gone. Despair and doubts and discouragement, decisions. Do we go back to our old occupations? We left being fishermen to be fishers of men. Do we go back? But I want to note something here. It's worth noting a level of devotion to Christ remains in all of them. Why? Because even in their missing Jesus' promises and what he proclaimed, even in their faithless condition, not believing he was going to rise again, none of them appear to return to their old lives of sin. None of them say, that's it, we're going to get drunk. Let's just drink away our sorrows. As best we can tell, not a single one says, I'm going back to the old lifestyle. Not worth it. The only one that did that was Judas, and he did that before the cross. All the rest of them, in all of their confusion, I want to tell you, if you're saved and you've been just hanging by a thread lately, God's going to pull you forward. If you have genuine faith, God's going to pull you forward because you're going to say, I'm not going to stop clinging to the teachings of Jesus. They were still clinging to the teachings. They would soon cling to him in his garments. But right now, they still stay devoted even though they were confused, discouraged, distraught. And the reason why they stayed devoted to the truth is because they had been born of the Spirit. If you're born of the Spirit, you will not fall away. God will keep you, even though there's times when you're shaky. And Jesus had prayed for them. And so that remaining devotion and love, it brings the women that's why they go back to the tomb. They just want to get near the tomb. By the way, the Roman soldiers, I don't even know what they were thinking. How close did they think they would get to the tomb? Okay, we can put, we can put these spices 50 yards away. I mean, remember, there's a, a contingent of Roman soldiers guarding the tomb, or was supposed to be. Which brings us to this one stunning Sunday as we come to a close here. The spices that the women had been preparing, and again, perhaps they would leave them as close to the tomb, ask the guards for permission to leave them there. But when they arrive, the tomb is open. The stone is rolled away. Turn with me back to, uh, if you have your Bibles, back to Luke chapter 24. Let's pick up where, with where we left off. We read verse 3, up to verse 3. Then they went in and did not find the body of Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. You don't see this every day, right? These are two men sent from heaven, two angels. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, 
they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Sometimes the angels look at people and say, why do you humans not believe Jesus? Why is it that he says something and you guys don't believe it sometimes? Now, they had already put their faith and trust in him, but they did not believe in the resurrection as of yet. So the angels say, why are you seeking the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember, here it is, but I just read you numerous times Jesus said what was going to happen. The angels are like, hold on, time out. We are in heaven. We heard him say this to you all numerous times. The angels say, remember how he spoke to you when he was in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again? The angel's like, do you all remember this? Everyone, the ladies are like, I think that rings a bell. I think he did say that. More than once he said it. Verse 8, and they remembered his words. Then they remembered for three days. You ever forget a verse that you thought you would never forget, and all of a sudden it comes? Then you remember it, and it's helpful to you? Then they remembered his words. Like, yes. He said, this empty tomb is not, it wasn't that Herod moved him. and so, He really did this. He really has risen. Now, so far, they haven't even seen him. And they remembered his words, and they returned from the tomb and told these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Here's, here's the great faith of the apostles at this point. And their words seemed to them like idle tales. And they did not believe them. The apostles said, he has not risen from the dead. He was the Son of God, but he's not risen from the dead. They didn't believe it, but Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lined by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. In Matthew, gospel 20, in Matthew 28, verse 6, he says, He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Jesus would later, shortly after this, he would appear first to Mary Magdalene. He, would, he had cast demons out of her. She falls at his feet and worships. Later that evening, he appears to the other disciples, and they see him for themselves. And they realize this is not just an empty tomb. It's a victoriously, it's a victory. Jesus strolled out of the tomb. The Canadian scientist G.B. Hardy said this. He said, Confucius' tomb, occupied. Buddha's tomb, occupied. Muhammad's, Muhammad's tomb, occupied. Jesus' tomb, empty. Empty. I'm not here this morning to defend the resurrection. I've done that in other messages. I've done my defense of the resurrection. Uh, I encourage anyone, if you're watching online, go to our YouTube channel. Uh, click on this past Wednesday night, Charlie Campbell's Case for the Resurrection. Watch it. It's 58 minutes. He goes through an acronym called RISEN, and you can see some great evidence. I've covered many of these things in the past. Today, I am not here to defend the resurrection. Charlie does a great defense of it. I'm here to proclaim the resurrection. I don't even have to defend it. Jesus never asked me to defend the resurrection. He said, just tell people I'm risen. But I'm here to proclaim it. And I'm also here to proclaim that our sins would not be covered unless Jesus first suffered, 
as the spotless lamb of God, bled and died on a cross. Had to be a cross. He couldn't be stoned like the Jewish tradition. It had to be a cross. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Way back in the law. He had to die on a cross, and he had to vacate the tomb and make it empty by walking out alive of his own power. No one raising him, walking out of his own accord. And walking out alive forevermore. And that's exactly what Jesus did. So how would his disciples respond? Well, it was a mixed response. As I mentioned, first it was unbelief. Peter marveled. How did this happen? What happened to the Roman soldiers? But when they finally realized that he really was risen, they saw him face to face. Even Thomas finally says, let me put my hand in your side and, and touch and Jesus and touch my hands. And, and when they finally saw that Jesus was ridden, risen, rejoicing. And Jesus said these words. And you and I need them. We need them right now as we've never needed them. Uh, he said, peace to you. Peace to you. She said, you guys need my peace. And once they had seen the resurrection, and uh, Charlie did a great job on Wednesday night covering this, once they saw the resurrection, they were all willing to die for Jesus because they knew they had a risen Savior. They knew their home was eternity. They knew their home was heaven, and that caused them to do what? Worship. As Thomas said, my Lord and my God. He called Jesus God, and Jesus did not correct him because Thomas was correct. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. God, 100% God, 100% man, 100% risen from the dead. The fact is clear. We need a risen Savior. Andrew Murray said these words. He said, a dead Christ I must do everything for. A living Christ does everything for me. You can't work your way to heaven. You can only receive the blood of Jesus and the resurrection power of Jesus. A dead leader is a dead religion. A living Savior is a living faith. A dead religion is all about works. What can I, how do I work my way to God? But Jesus has come down from God to man. It's a living faith it's a living relationship with a risen Jesus. The tomb is victoriously empty. Amen? The tomb is victoriously empty. But have you come, I'm speaking to whoever's out there, have you come to the one that defeated sin and death? Have you come to him? I came personally to him. Greatest decision I ever made. And those of you that are born again, Best decision you've ever made. You see, the cross is empty. Aren't you glad? The cross is empty. Jesus will never, ever again hang on a cross. The cross is empty. The grave is empty. Jesus will never lie in the grave again. The cross is empty. The grave is empty. But what about your heart? Is it still empty? Because that empty needs to be filled. Is it empty or has Jesus come and taken residence in your heart? See, he left the cross and he left the tomb to dwell in us. Uh, we, that's why we're called little tabernacles, our body. 
We in him, him in us. He now resides in my heart. He now resides in my spirit. Has he taken residence in you? I'm not talking about Jesus being a part of your life. I'm talking about Jesus being the life in you. A light, the life in you. Have you been born again? Has Jesus come in? If you haven't come to Christ, many people have heard the gospel. I've witnessed to people. I've, I've shared the gospel painstakingly all the way through, and people said, I don't want to do that. Let me ask you, what's holding you back? What's holding you back? Why would you wait any longer to give your life to Christ? It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now. Everyone believes in something. Did you know that? If you're listening online, everybody believes in something. Did you know that some people believe that right now they would be on a beautiful vacation on Easter break? And God says, no, you won't. The whole world will be on quarantine. Did you know people, when they booked their plans back in December or January or November, they booked their plans and they had been looking forward to this or that, and God says, I've already seen the future. You won't be there. You'll be at home right now watching online because I want to save your soul. I don't want you on that trip. I don't want you over here. I want you to hear my son. Because this world, I'm here to tell you, I'm glad. Jesus walked out of the grave, and 40 days later, went back to his home in heaven, and guess where I'm going to be going before, hopefully soon, I'd love to see Jesus come back. He's coming back a second time. But if I live to be 100, this world is not my home. So what are you waiting for? What are you putting on? You say, well, I, I'm just hoping that everything, I, that, that, as soon as we get a vaccine and the coronavirus gets worked out, that my life can return to normal. Then what? Well, then I'm going to live really cool. Then what? Well, then I'm going to live till I'm 75. Well, then what? Then I'm going to retire. Well, then what? Then you're going to die. Then what? You have the same need, but you don't even know what tomorrow holds. Many people, we, like I said, in the last few weeks, we've had people, family members of people in our church, die from things that have nothing to do with the pandemic. Nothing to do with the pandemic. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. Kobe Bryant didn't die of coronavirus. He was in a helicopter. Had nothing to do with the coronavirus. So all of these things, Jesus is the cure to the biggest issues we have. Sin and death. Why would we wait any longer when he's calling us by name. And I just want to uh, close by giving an invitation. I know that you know, we don't have an invitation here, but wherever you are at, Tuan's going to play quietly. And I'm just going to ask those of you that are watching online, if the Lord spoke to you, and, and it has to be a work of the Holy Spirit, I could never convince a person to come to Christ. No one ever convinced me. Jesus did. And boy, when he convinced me, I ran forward. I didn't literally run, but I... I came forward, tears running down my face, and I knew that I needed God's forgiveness. I knew I was a sinner. But I'm going to ask you these. If you know you're a sinner, you know, well, I've sinned, and I've done things that no one knows. God knows. You know you're a sinner. You, you know you've done things, and even if you've only committed one sin, you still need a Savior. 
but we've mm -hmm. all committed more than one. We have some that every person has sins that no one knows they've committed but them. And the Bible says if you live to, and die in that condition, someday God will unveil everything you've ever done, and you'll have to give an account for it all. Or you can say, well, I am guilty, but Jesus paid it all, and I want to take his forgiveness. That's what he offers. If we pay for it, it's eternity in hell. If he pays for it, it's eternity in heaven. How would we not say yes, Jesus? But you have to admit you're a sinner. You have to say, not only am I a sinner, not only have I committed sin, but then you have to say, Lord, will you please forgive me? You have to ask for his forgiveness. And you have to turn from those sins and be willing to say, I'm deciding now to follow you as my Lord and Savior. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. But it's a heart decision. You have to decide, Lord, I don't care what my friends think. I don't care what my family think. I don't care if it costs me my job. I don't care because I know I need to be saved because you're not guaranteed tomorrow anyway. So I'm going to pray. And if you have been spoken to by the Lord and, and the Lord has said to you, it's time to come home and give your heart to Christ. I'm going to pray and you pray with me. I'm also going to ask for those of you that are saved and you know the Lord and you've been very distant, apathetic, lukewarm. I want you to take this time to quietly recommit your life to Christ. Yes, right here on the 12th day of the month, right in the end of Passover season, on the first day of the week, on Easter Sunday, say, Lord, I'm coming back to make you the center of my life. But I want to pray if those that have never asked Jesus into their heart to be their Lord and Savior, just pray along with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for dying. Thank you for suffering. Thank you for bleeding and shedding your blood for my sin. I ask that you, Lord, would please forgive me. I recognize recognize my sin, that I am a sinner, that I need your forgiveness. Please cleanse me. Forgive me. I'm deciding this day to turn from my sins to you as my Lord and Savior. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. Write my name in your Lamb's Book of Life. For I've decided this day to turn from my past life and to follow you as my Lord and Savior, just as the thief on the cross did. Lord, I give my life to you. In Jesus' name I pray.